It's 1208. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So glad to have you with us. Now, okay, I admit I might have been a little cranky by the time the NCAA tournament show rolled around yesterday. All right, my, my, my day started off. We have all these pictures to hang at the, at the new house, and um, I just... I mean, lots and lots of pictures and mirrors and stuff, and we we have uh, a guy who does rehab and handy who does rehab who helps rehab older houses and um, also does handyman stuff. And he came over because I didn't want to spend four hours trying to hang pictures and stuff. So he and his son came over, and they're they're doing that. I get sent out to get donuts for everybody. All right, so I get really good donuts. I come back, and then I have to run an errand. I, by the time I come back after my errand, all the donuts are gone because. My loving wife decided I don't need to eat donuts, so she gave them to the people to take. No, I mean, no bear claws, no apple fritters, no nothing. So I got no donuts. So I, admittedly, I'm a little bit, you know, irritated with the with the no donuts thing. And then while my wife, she took her grandkids to go see A Wrinkle in Time, I finally got around to putting together the taxes, getting all the stuff ready for the accountant. And that's like a three-hour job. And I... I admit that, you know, it's just, it's kind of tedious. I'm sort of grumbling, I'm grumbling, but I'm waiting all day for the NCAA selection show, which was on TBS this year. All right. Now, the NCAA selection show has gotten ripped over the course of the last two years. Um, CBS, two years ago when they had it, they, they drew it out to like an hour, two hours, two hours. And people just went absolutely nuts. And part of the thing problem was the brackets had leaked out before the show. So people knew this stuff, but you still had to wait around while CBS dragged it out. Well, last year, it was almost as bad, except 90 minutes. And so everybody's been complaining about, oh, we got to get this better. We, you know, people want this information, et cetera. So TBS had it this year, and TBS decided, well, we're going to do this differently. Instead of showing the brackets, what we're going to do is we're just going to tell you the teams that are going to the NCAA tournament, and we're going to do it in alphabetical order, and then we'll go back and, you know, we'll show you the brackets later on. And and that's that's what they did. I mean, starting in alphabetical order, starting with the A's and all the way through, you know, Xavier or whoever the last team was, you know, they, they go through this. And, and so you know the teams that were going to be in this, um, right away in the first like five or ten minutes. So um, for me, my Marquette team, I, I didn't believe that they were going to get into the NCAA, but and, and they didn't. But you know, you knew right away when they came to the M's and there wasn't Marquette. You knew your team wasn't going to be there. But what they missed by doing this this way was all the drama of like focusing on these teams, waiting to see the brackets, etc., etc., etc. All right, four one four seven nine nine one six twenty. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. A lot of work is going to not get done this week as you run into the first round of the men's first or second round of the NCAA basketball tournament. Everybody's looking at their brackets, trying to figure out, you know, who's going to win and that type of stuff. And that's all fun and that's well and good. But if you watch the selection show yesterday, was this an improvement? where they just put all the teams out alphabetical order. So you knew, you might not have known where your team was going, you might not have known what the seed was going to be, but you knew whether your team was going to get in right away. By doing it this way, what they did is they pretty much, well, ended any mystery early, except, you know, where is the team going to go and who is the team going to play? You knew the team was getting in, but they also, you don't have that, that drama of, you know, focusing on, you know, a particular team that might be on the bubble or something with the cameras there, and you focus when you see that that team actually got in. 
If you watched the NCAA selection show, and I know you probably did yesterday, was it an improvement or was it a mess? 414-799-1620. That's the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Bill from Oconomowoc starts us off with a text. The NCAA show yesterday was an absolute train wreck. I think it was too. How tough is it to get something like this right? And simply going alphabetizing the teams and saying this is who got in, I think this was a bad, bad idea. 414-799-1620. If you watched it, did they get it right? They have been struggling for the last few years to figure out how to put this on television. 414-799-1620. We discuss in just a minute. It's 1213. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. If you watched it, did you like the way they did it this year? My answer would be no. Stick around. We'll talk about it. 1216, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I swear, I do not understand why it is that television networks that have ready-made drama and a system that works decide to play around with formats. That's exactly what happened yesterday with the NCAA um, rollout. Used to be you'd have the show, they'd announce the brackets. Well, what happened is two years ago, CBS made people wait about an hour and a half till they saw all the brackets, and people went absolutely crazy about that. So they said, "Okay, we're going to try to we're going to try to improve stuff." So last year it took about forty five minutes. This year they came up with this different idea. Let's tell everybody, you know, what teams get in right away. So in the first eight minutes of the show, they put everything out alphabetically. So you didn't know whether your team, where your team was going to play or who it was going to play, but you knew within the first eight or nine minutes whether your team made it or not. This, I think, had the effect of eliminating all that, that drama. Um, you, you didn't see the TV cameras that were watching the teams that may or may not have gotten in. You didn't see everybody cheering and things like that. And it still took about 40 minutes after that before they rolled out all the brackets, which is what people really care about in general. 414-799-1620. Let's start with Wendy and Racine. Wendy, good afternoon. Hi. Hi, Wendy. I actually enjoyed it. I know that's contrary to your point of view. but That's okay. Um, I, like, I like knowing was my team in or out? You know, alphabetically, you're waiting to hear Wisconsin. When you get past it, you're like, oh, that didn't work. Then Northwestern, not making it in. What I didn't enjoy from yesterday was the kind of, I don't know, snide remarks about some of the teams that made it that, in their opinion, they shouldn't have made it. Right. I thought that was kind of discouraging. Um, I did like the apprehension of waiting to see who was the number one, who was the two seed, you know, how were they all going to fit against each other. So I think some of the drama was still there. Um, but I hear what you're saying. I did not like the delay, the time delay, watching people just looking at the screen, waiting for like 30 seconds to see them celebrate. That was kind of goofy. Opinion. Oh, you didn't. So you didn't like that when they they show the team and the kids didn't know if they were going to get in or not, and then they'd all cheer because they got in. You you didn't like that fa- aspect the, of it, huh? The, the time lag, is right. what I didn't like. You know, right. and that's year over year the time lag. I do like watching the team celebrate. It was always kind of the same celebration. It's, yeah. I mean, that is nice to see, but I think the time lag was really what I didn't like. Well, thanks. See, thanks because see the the reason they. The reason they made this change is because it just, in the past, it took them so long to get to the heart of the matter that people were going nuts. And then two years ago, the brackets leaked out, so that killed a lot of the interest that was in it. See, this shouldn't be that difficult. 
to, to me, the, the key is just don't bury the lead. And I understand it's all about TV ratings and you want to drag stuff on, but it shouldn't take you 45 minutes to roll out these different brackets. And I understand it's for ratings and things like that. You want to hang on. To me, the way to do it is the way that they have always done it, roll out the brackets but do it from the jump and, and then have your analysis. I mean, you, you should have all the brackets out there in the first you know, 15 minutes. It, it shouldn't be that difficult. And then you have the high-paid analysts who come in, and they can just talk about the stuff. Um, I know what you're talking about, Wendy, with where they were ripping on different teams. Um, Oklahoma probably shouldn't be in. Syracuse definitely shouldn't be in. But that's the NCAA trying to make money because Syracuse fans – travel all over so you know that a lot of them are going to go wherever the Syracuse game is so other teams that probably are more deserving ended up not getting in but that's what the NCAA is all about in any event this is it's it's this great thing it's this thing that just mobilizes it brings people together whether you're a Republican or a Democrat whether you're conservative or liberal doesn't matter lions and lambs lie down to participate in the NCAA basketball tournament every year it is a huge cash cow it shouldn't be that hard to get it right when you roll it out on TV. All right, when we come back, President Trump says he is running for re-election. Would you like to see him get a Republican challenger? We'll discuss. 1221, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 1223, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The countdown to opening day is on. Tonight on Sports Central, Greg Matzik goes live to Maryville, Arizona to catch up with the Brewers play-by-play man Lane Grindle. That is at 6.15 tonight. Opening day, which is in San Diego this year. I do think it's kind of ironic that the Brewers, who play under a dome, open in a warm-weather city. You would think that the Brewers would open at home and play some team from a cold-weather city, but I don't make the schedules. They open in San Diego and then come back um, that next Monday for uh, the home opener against the St. Louis Cardinals. We've already got our opening day plan in place. It looks like a lot of fun, and I'm enjoying being uh, having an opportunity to participate in it again, as I have for years and years and years now. But opening day, two weeks from Thursday. Boy, be good to hear baseball back on the radio. All right, uh, big story number two. President Trump announced, what, a week or two ago that he was planning to run for re-election. He's already hired his campaign manager. He's been raising money since, um, essentially since he was first inaugurated. Um, he attended a, he, he did one of these rallies in Pennsylvania the other night. Um, ostensibly, this was an effort to help a Republican candidate who's running in a special election keep his seat um, that special election is going to be on Tuesday. A- as often happens, though, at Trump rallies, the president just kind of go- goes off on his own riffs. It was actually about an hour into his presentation before he even mentioned the candidate that he was there to kind of support. Um, and, and you had it was 75 minutes. Um, they, they pack a bunch of people into a, an aircraft hangar. And it, it's, again, classic President Trump. He's, you know, Bounces off the teleprompter. He starts doing, you know, a number of things off the top of his head, starts throwing out around a lot of stuff. It was classic Trump. And the crowd, of course, ate, ate it up, even though, again, the purpose was to try to support the guy who's running for Congress in the special election. And he didn't get mentioned till over an hour into the, the speech. But it, it was, it was classic Trump. In any event, 
Jeff Flake, who is one of the Republicans from, he's a Republican senator from Arizona who is stepping down. Um, he's been, Flake has been one of Trump's biggest adversaries in the Republican Party. So um, Flake is on Meet the Press over the weekend, and somebody says, well, okay, that the president is has already announced that he is running for re-election. Do you think that somebody should take him on? Do you think a Republican or Republicans should challenge him in the primary? Republicans who express more traditional conservative views on free trade and other things, and Republicans who candidly aren't, well, aren't as as much into chaos and and drama. Would you like to see a Republican challenger take on Trump in the primaries? And Senator Flake's response is, yes, 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 I do, I do. It would be a tough go in a Republican primary. He says the Republican Party is the Trump Party right now, but that's not to say that it will stay that way. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Um, I, I think the senator is correct when he says that in many respects the Republican Party isn't the Republican Party that many of us have grown up with and that many of us have supported over the years. It's it's the Trump Party, which espouses some traditional conservative values and, and others it, it, it doesn't. Um, also, I think regardless of how you feel about policy, for a lot of us, the chaos, the drama, all that stuff is wearing. So let's tee this up. 414-799-1620. Would you like to see a Republican challenge to President Trump in the upcoming primaries? And let's throw in a caveat. Now, we're sitting here. It's March of 2018. You've got midterms in November of 2018. If, if... The midterms turn into a disaster. And I I say that's an if. Um, That's certainly just like after Barack Obama took over, you had a huge backlash to Obama. And Democrats started losing local races. They started losing state races. They started losing federal races in a backlash. If the 2018 midterms break bad, if the Republicans if the Republicans lose control of the U.S. Senate, if they theoretically even lose control of the House, if they drop 20, 30, 40 seats in the House, um, and that's a response and viewed as a response to President Trump, would you like to see a Republican challenge? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I understand what he says when he says the Republican Party is the party of Trump right now, but I will tell you something, and feel free to disagree, I hope somebody emerges to challenge President Trump in the Republican primary. I would like to see a debate again be held by somebody with conservative values, but perhaps less drama. Now, I don't know if that person's going to be able to win or not. But, yeah, I I don't think President Trump should necessarily get a free ride for the Republican nomination. 414-799-1620. Bob in Fond du Lac. Bob, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, good morning. How are you doing there, bud? I'm well, thank you, sir. What do you think? I Right now, I'm 60 years old. I've been a diehard Republican since I can remember. But, you know, after this, I don't think I'm ever going to vote Republican ever again. 
Okay, when you say after this, what do you mean? You can't blame Donald Trump. Donald Trump is trying, but the Republicans themselves, their two colors came out when they started stabbing him in the back. Every one of them were yelling and screaming when Mr. Obama, well, did this to Obamacare. Hillary did, didn't guys, all the Republicans just yelling and screaming, da, da, da. And then Donald is going to try and fix things, and they just stabbed him in the back. He has everything. He has the Senate, the House. And they're not helping him with nothing. Okay, so you're you don't blame the president. You think it's it's Congress that has undermined him. I do believe so. Yes, I think they just despise him so much. They don't like the way he's acting, which I don't like the way he's acting either. But his policies that he's trying to push forward are what he ran on. Mm-hmm. Okay, so you're you don't want to see somebody run against him. You just candidly think that the Republican Party is part of the swamp. Yes. Okay, thanks to call 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here's a text. Yes, I like a lot of Trump's policies, but he's such a buffoon, and many of us under 40 would like a more traditional presidential president, not a reality TV star. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I would love to see a candidate emerge so we can have this debate, particularly if things go badly for Republicans in the 2018 midterms, I don't think we should automatically say, hey, the Republican primary, the Republican race for the presidential nomination in 2020 is going to be a coronation. I don't think we should do that. 1236, Jeff Wetner, WTMJ, uh, retiring Arizona Senator Jeff Flake, goes on Meet the Press yesterday and says, I hope that in the 2020 primary season, some Republican emerges to challenge Donald Trump. He says, look, I understand this is going to be an uphill battle because it's not the Republican Party anymore. It's the Trump Party. But he says, I hope somebody emerges to challenge him, somebody who doesn't want the drama, somebody who doesn't want the chaos, somebody who espouses perhaps more traditional Republican positions on issues like trade and things of the like. Um, I, I agree. I hope there is a primary challenge, particularly since if the two, if the 2018 midterm elections break bad, and I don't know if that's going to happen. Certainly, if you look at what's going on since Republicans, since Donald Trump take, has taken over, there has been a backlash. There's this enthusiasm gap. I, I think Republicans need to be pragmatic. And if you decide that Donald Trump can't win reelection in 2020, well, well, why? Why don't you perhaps, you know, change horses? 414-799-1620. Rick in St. Francis. Rick, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, Jeff. How are you today? I'm well, thank you. What should happen? Well, I didn't vote for Trump in 2016. I didn't vote for Hillary in 2016. Who I voted for was Paul Ryan, and that was probably a wasted vote because it didn't count. Right. I would want Paul Ryan to step up to the plate and uh, run against him. So you'd like to see, boy, now, uh, you'd like to see the Speaker of the House challenge, challenge Donald Trump. Do you think Ryan would have any chance? Well, I think he would have a big chance. It's just a question of would he be willing to do it. Um, right, because that's, I mean, that's a tough way. I mean, that, that, that's, that, that's tough if you're the Speaker of the House to take on a, your, the sitting president. Okay, so a number of people are asking me, when, when did that happen last? Well, all right, during, I let me go back. The last time I remember a serious challenge, and that's what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a serious challenge to a sitting president, um, not somebody just kind of you know throws their name in and is cannon fodder. Back in 1980, Jimmy Carter 
who was, by the way, um, Carter ended up losing to Ronald Reagan. A lot of people saw the Carter presidency as being an absolute disaster. And a lot of the, the handwriting was on the wall. A lot of people thought Carter was going to lose. Carter had a very, very contested primary season. He was challenged by, okay, before your time, Grew, who's producing the show today, but Ted Kennedy. Ted Kennedy mounted uh, an intensive primary campaign against Jimmy Carter, and a lot of people thought that that Kennedy would be able to pull it off. Kennedy, Ted Kennedy, was, of course, an incredibly flawed candidate. Um, this was 10 years after the Chappaquiddick thing, and um, but, but Kennedy mounted a very, very strong challenge that Carter ultimately, you know, was able to, you know, fend off, but Carter went on to, to lose to Ronald Reagan. So, 80, I think, is the last time that, again, a sitting president had a serious challenge. But let me give you another example. And again, for some people, this is before your time, but, you know, 1968, which was kind of a seminal year in American politics, Lyndon Johnson, keep in mind, in 64, Lyndon Johnson, you know, took over after the assassination of President Kennedy in November of 63. He ran, uh, won in a landslide in 64. And um, he ended up not running again. He had a number of primary challengers. Uh, Eugene McCarthy was the anti-war candidate. Bobby Kennedy ultimately ended up getting into the race um, late. And then, uh, you know, I think it was it was after the New Hampshire primary. So February of 68, uh, Lyndon Johnson gives a speech where he says, I'm, I'm not I'm not running again. So you had the primary challenge. And I think Johnson recognized and concluded that he just wasn't going to be able to win because of the dissatisfaction against the war. That threw the Democratic Party into turmoil, and it opened the door for Richard Nixon. So those are at least two examples in modern time. Now, I don't recall President Reagan certainly didn't have any strong challenger um, against him. The first President Bush didn't. Bill Clinton didn't. George Bush didn't. And then uh, Barack Obama didn't have any strong challengers. So you do have to go back, again, going on 40 years, which is is a long time. But I, I think you can argue that President Trump is certainly as controversial as, well, certainly as controversial as, as Jimmy Carter and certainly perhaps as controversial as Lyndon Johnson was. I guess my only point is, if the midterms go bad, if the midterms go bad and Republicans lose control of the U.S. Senate or lose control of the House of Representatives or drop so many seats that it's apparent that for whatever reason the controversy involving Trump is so great that it appears that he's not going to be able to get stuff done, and it appears that he's not going to be able to get reelected, I would like to see somebody emerge to argue, you know, maybe we don't need the drama. Maybe we don't need the, the chaos. Maybe we need a more traditional sort of Republican. Maybe we don't need to fight the tariff wars and those type of things. Now, I don't know. To try to, you know, beat a sitting president who's got all this money in primaries would be tough. And I understand that right now the Republican Party is the the Trump Party. You have a lot of people who for decades and decades, you know, had certain different principles and certain values. And now they've kind of changed because President Trump has presumably changed them but i think that there's a lot of potential that's out there and i would like to see i would like at least like to see republicans have this debate in 2019 instead of 
treating this as a coronation. That, that, that's all. Let's, let's see where the soul of the Republican Party is, and let's see how pragmatic Republicans are. Again, particularly if 2018 is an electoral bloodbath, will things be different in 2020? Or just like Democrats for years under Barack Obama, Democrats sacrificed themselves. They were like lemmings. They walked over the sides of cliffs for Barack Obama. Barack Obama got reelected, but Democrats lost seats right and left. Will Republicans do the same thing? That's the question moving forward. It's 1243. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Big story number three coming right up. 1246, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. Harley-Davidson has its plan set for the 115th anniversary celebration here in Milwaukee this summer. Check out all the info by texting the word Harley to the Acunet Mortgage Talk and text line at 414-799-1620. All right. Breaking news. This is not, and this is actually, um, this is, this is one of those occasions where Somebody tells you no, and it is a good thing. Now, Tom Barrett's dream, his legacy in the city of Milwaukee, for good or for bad, is going to be Tom's trolley. It's going to be the streetcar. Fifteen years from now, fifteen years from now, I don't think anybody's going to remember what it, what it was that Tom Barrett did, except you are going to remember the trolley. Now, as I have argued for years, This, I think, is going to be an incredible boondoggle. And if you look at other trolleys around the country, you are starting to see that. Cincinnati's trolley. Nobody rides it and it doesn't run in the, uh, and it doesn't run when it gets cold or when it snows. Hmm. Washington DC, they're already abandoning plans to do any sort of expansions. Other places, they haven't, where was the place we were talking about the other day that they, they, they can't even charge? They haven't been able to charge for anybody to ride the trolley for three years. And even with free rides, they, they don't get anybody doing it. Milwaukee's is going to be no different. And I will give Tom Barrett credit for one thing. He, I think, acknowledges and understands that this initial 120 whatever million dollar streetcar line isn't going to attract that many riders because it really doesn't go anywhere that people want to go. The bus depot, you know, down to the Lower East Side, I mean, this is a yuppie mover for people who... I don't know, want to, you know, want to go to the bars or something. It's not going to effectively get people where they need it to go. And Barrett's been honest about that. Barrett says, well, my plan is we build this and I know that it's not going to have that great a ridership, but then that's going to be our justification. Once we get the tracks, you know, in the ground, then what we'll do is we will expand it all around. We'll take it up to UWM. We'll take it past the arena. We'll take it down to the airport. We'll build the trolley all over. Well, all right. <laughs> this first this first trolley leg costs what 120 million plus another 10 whatever million to run it down to the the lakefront so you can go from the bus depot to the lakefront you know during summerfest which is fine but you know what about you know the other 350 or 340 days of the year when you don't have lakefront festivals why do you need a, a fixed rail line well in any event barrett's plan has been we're going to expand this we're going to put this all over the city well, the problem is it costs a ton of money to do that. And just like the first extension is being built in part with other people's money, you know, this federal money, 
um, the state, the, any subsequent expansion of the trolley line would have to come with, again, federal taxpayer dollars. So here is what the Business Journal is reporting. For the second time in a row, Milwaukee has failed to win a federal grant for downtown streetcar extension to the arena. This is what Sean Ryan from the Business Journal reports. A $40 million million downtown streetcar extension to the Milwaukee Bucks arena. Isn't it interesting, by the way, that they still don't have that named? Still no naming rights, and already it's it's March. Hmm. A $40 million downtown streetcar extension to the Milwaukee Bucks Arena failed to win a competitive federal grant for the second time, leaving the project's construction schedule in limbo. Let me translate. The feds aren't kicking in any money, so it isn't going to get built. The city was seeking $20 million in Federal Department of Transportation grant money to pay for that track extension. It would have run primarily along North 4th Street, linking the Milwaukee Intermodal Station, that's the bus depot, on West St. Paul Avenue to the new arena that will open this fall on West Juneau Avenue. The $500 million federal grant program is competitive, and the Milwaukee streetcar did not make the cut. Hmm. The DOT on Friday announced the grant awards to the Transportation Investment Generating Economic Recovery Program. The only victory for Wisconsin is a bus transfer station project in the city of Eau Claire. Um, these grants are awarded annually, and Milwaukee can reapply. But um, let's see, they previously applied for the same project last year, didn't in 2016, didn't work. It took two attempts for the city to win $14.2 million to um, run the streetcar down to the lakefront. That grant was awarded in 2015. Um, of course, the city of Milwaukee, under Tom Barrett, says that they're going to continue to try to do this. They want more money, and they want the federal money to do it. My guess is that this streetcar project isn't going to get a dime of additional federal money for at least the foreseeable future. And the only way they're going to qualify for additional money is if they can somehow demonstrate that this first leg, once it starts riding, is a success And I don't know that anybody's going to be holding their breath on that. So if you're looking for some good news today as far as uh, not throwing good money after bad, Milwaukee has failed to win a federal grant for a downtown streetcar extension to the arena. Ah, Tom's trolley folly. Well, at least... At least some of the grown-ups in the room are saying, oh, we're just not going to throw good money after bad right now. 1252, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. When we come back, what could the Tavern League have been thinking? Stick around. 1256, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. All right. This is why you shouldn't watch legislation being made. Um, there's a bill that was moving its way. It was passed in the state assembly, headed for the state senate. The legislation originally would allow wineries, would allow wineries to stay open um, from 9 p.m. until midnight. All right, as long as the locality agrees. So, th- th- fine. I don't think anybody has any objections to that. It passes. Um, there was an amendment that was kind of stuck into the process with the support of the Tavern League. So this is originally starts out as a bill which would allow Wisconsin wineries that have tasting rooms to stay open till midnight if the locality agreed with that. All right, instead of having to close at 9. This amendment was tacked on with the support of the Tavern League, which would require private properties that rent space for parties 
to obtain a liquor license in order to allow alcohol consumption. So in other words, let's say that you have a, you got a farmhouse, you got a barn or something, and you rent that out for wedding receptions or whatever. The Tavern League wanted to protect its members. And so what this bill would have done is if you're a homeowner, you, you rent out, you rent out your barn for parties. Well, you wouldn't have been able to let people bring liquor in. You wouldn't have been able to allow them to uh, provide their own alcohol. So, um, unless they got a liquor license, and of course you're not going to be able to get a liquor license for that. So this was a protectionist thing. They're trying to, I don't know, protect existing ballrooms and stuff with liquor licenses from the competition of a private party who might want to rent out the barn, etc. Now, I, I happen to think that that's a bad idea to begin with, but doesn't matter. The language that was passed in this bill, it, it's just amazing. It, it's so incredibly broad. What it says is no owner or person in charge of property that is not a public place and who receives payment for temporary use of the property by another person for a specific event may permit the consumption of alcoholic beverages on the property unless the person has an appropriate retail license. So, yeah, that's aimed at, again, the person that wants to rent out their barn and allow the people who rent it out to bring liquor in. But the way this is written, let's say that you, I don't know, you live by Lambeau Field and you rent out your lawn to parkers. People who come in to park their cars and they have tailgate parties on that private property. The way this bill is written is that they could not have beer. This would end tailgate parties. And, of course, nobody in the legislature realized that. The Wisconsin Institute for Law and Liberty caught it. And now it's it's not going to go anywhere. The Tavern League is all upset about this. But 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 here's the problem, again, with language and laws. You need to take a few minutes and you need to to read them and you need to think about them. In an effort to protect existing businesses with liquor licenses, this legislation was drafted so very, very broadly that it would have essentially made tailgating on private property illegal. There's a stadium exception, so you could still, if you park at Miller Park, you could still tailgate there. Or if you park on the grounds of Lambeau Field, you could still uh, do that. But a lot of people park in private parking lots to do this type of stuff. This would have killed that. How does that make any sense at all? It's 1259. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 108, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. So very glad to have you with us. All right. Does the Denver sheriff have blood on his hands? Here's the deal. On October 30th of last year, woman was killed in a situation by, where there was a hit-and-run driver. Hit-and-run driver leaving the scene of an accident killed a 28-year-old lawyer. Her name was Karina Pule. All right. Um, after this incident happened, they tracked down, found the guy that was responsible for this. And he was subsequently charged with the hit and run resulting in death. Turns out that the man was in this country illegally. He had been deported to Honduras in 2007, returned, however, illegally to the United States, and was twice arrested in Denver, including 
for suspicion of driving under the influence. That is before police say he ran over this woman in a full-size pickup truck on East 13th Avenue and Broadway before fleeing. So here you have somebody who is, again, in the country illegally, and he has you know, committed various crimes. So how does this get to be an issue? Well, what apparently happened is that um, the woman was killed on October 30th. The guy is caught, and November 3rd, November 3rd, you know, he he's, ends up being charged. Felony hit and run, driving without proof of insurance, careless driving resulting in death. All right, so immigration comes in. Immigration finds out about this. And immigration says, hey, this guy is in this country illegally. Here, we're going to put a detainer on him, which, in other words, a detainer is document that says this man is in the country illegally. We understand, Denver, that he is in your custody. We understand that he has committed a crime. But before he bails out, if he bails out, we want you to, if you're going to release him for whatever reasons, we want you to turn him over to us. And then what we're going to do is we're going to start the deportation proceeding. So they put what is known, like I say, as a detainer on him. So that's what they do. They issue this detainer. What happens is on November 12th at 1.25 a.m., a.m., the Denver Sheriff's Department says, hey, um, we, we want to tell you that this guy that you have the detainer on, the guy that was responsible for the hit and run, He's going to be released from the city jail. He apparently had posted bail late uh, on November 11th. They notify immigration essentially in the middle of the night, and he is subsequently freed. The Denver authorities do not honor the detainer. And as a result of that, he is released from custody until onto the street released from custody so he's out um again on the streets from november 12th on now ultimately once federal authorities found out about this they went out and and they they ended up getting separate criminal charges and they ended up arresting him so they were able to catch him before he fled but the point is you have somebody who is in this country illegally Federal immigration authorities say, hey, tell us before you release him and don't release him until, you know, give him to us. And Denver says, nope, we're not going to do it. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. See, this is at the heart of the the sanctuary city debate, and, and this is the essence of it. It is local and sometimes state authorities that decide they are not going to cooperate with federal officials. And the result in this case was a guy who illegally in this country, um, and not just illegally in the country, but in the country after having been deported at least once, responsible for a very, very serious crime, and then he is turned loose without immigration officials being given a chance to pick him up. And so now you've, you've got this complete and total mess that's out there. They've got him back in custody, but there's a problem out in Denver because 
The federal feds say, hey, we don't trust you anymore. All right, we've got these federal charges against him. The state is saying, well, we want to prosecute him for our offense, so they've raised the bail. But the bottom line is you have somebody who committed a crime while illegally in this country, and you had a local community decided it did not want to cooperate with federal immigration officials. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I think this is irresponsible in the extreme, and I think cities that do it, whether it's Oakland or Madison or Denver, cities that refuse to cooperate with federal authorities when it comes to immigration law because, well, we don't want to be federal immigration agents or we don't want people to be reluctant or be afraid to go to the police, you know, to report a crime. When people have been charged with criminal behavior and the state or the city or the municipality or the county knows that person is here illegally, I think it is irresponsible for that city, county, municipality, state, not to cooperate with the federal government. And if they do choose to go that route, I think the federal government has every right to say, all right, you, you don't want to cooperate. You don't want to follow federal laws. Fine. Don't expect federal money for law enforcement. If you're not going to work with us, that's going to be the cost of this political correctness. 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Is it time to crack down on sanctuary cities? And do you want to live? Do you want to live in a community where the local authorities are prohibited from cooperating with federal authorities to get illegal aliens who commit crimes off the street. 115, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. 117, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The hashtag MeToo movement continues. Is it, cha- is it changing conversations between men and women in the workplace? Gene Miller, Takes a look at 621 tomorrow. Tune in to Wisconsin's Morning News. Um, you know, when did we stop worrying about, when did we stop caring about the victim? And I'm, I'm trying to imagine this situation. Okay, you have this 28-year-old woman who was killed, illegal alien who's back after being deported, who had come into contact with law enforcement a couple, he'd been arrested for other things as well, and finally hits and kills somebody, takes off. They catch him. The judge sets a ridiculously low bail. Immigration finds out about it, federal authorities, and they put a detainer on him. They say, look, you know, if you're going to release him, rather than let him get on the streets, tell us, and we're going to come because he's, you know, in violation of federal law. We'll pick him up. So what happens is Denver decides they're not going to honor the, the detainer. They call the immigration people at one twenty-five in the morning and say, hey, we're sending this guy out on the streets, and he goes out on the streets. So ultimately, you know, immigration gets its own arrest warrant, and they catch him, and they arrest him a couple weeks later. But he was out on the street. Can you imagine how you would feel if you were the husband or the brother or the father or mother or the grandfather or grandmother of this woman who was killed? And you find out that the guy who killed her and fled was in this country illegally, was here after he had previously been deported, had been arrested on multiple occasions, and nobody had cooperated with immigration. And now, after a ridiculously low bail is set, 
you know, federal authorities still didn't know, and the guy is released. Can you imagine how you would feel? When did we decide that the rights of people who are in this country illegally are going to trump the rights, no pun intended, trump the rights of the, the victims of, of crime to see the perpetrators brought to justice? I mean, that that is what is so aggravating, and that is at the heart of this sanctuary city movement. Now, I'm talking about people who have actually committed crimes. I understand the argument is, well, if you have people that are in this country illegally and you're going to always be making routine checks to determine, you know, whether they're here illegally or not, they might not feel comfortable coming forward and reporting crimes. Right? We're not even at that stage at this point. What this situation involves is a guy who was in the country illegally after deportation who committed crimes. Why in God's green earth would you, you know, as in this case in Denver, why would you turn this guy loose without allowing immigration to pick him up and to make sure that, again, he's prosecuted federally or he's prosecuted statewide or you work it out, whatever that is, why would you just turn him loose? And why it is that the people who advocate for the rights of people who are in this country illegally, why it is that they go out on a limb and defend that policy with regard to people who have committed serious crimes is bizarre to me. Number of texts on this. Uh, take, don't, don't take away their law budget for law enforcement. Take away their transportation. That way it doesn't hurt the security of the people. Um, there seems like another bizarre political hill the Democrats choose to defend that alienates them from most Americans. I think there's a point with that. I would Here's another text. I would not only withhold federal law enforcement money from the federal level, I would withhold all federal money from the state, not the city. Leave it to the state to keep their cities in line with the law. Now, Mitch in Waukesha says it's not just unlawful, it's unethical. Bring up ethics charges. People fear those more than the law these days. Bottom line is... All right, I understand for people who want to advocate for the rights of illegal people who are illegally in this country, fine. But once they cross the line and commit crimes, it is absurd, absolutely absurd, not to cooperate with federal law enforcement. It's 122. This is Jeff Wagner. 124, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Bob Euchre is back on your radio. The Cactus League is underway, and you can check out the crew's entire spring training broadcast schedule in the Brewers section of WTMJ.com or by texting the word Brewers to 414-799-1620. All right, Journal Sentinel has an interesting story about a guy who's been banned from visiting his ill son at Children's Hospital. Here's the deal. The man is 49 years old. Back in 1998, so you're talking 20 years ago, um, so presumably that makes him you know, 29 at the time. He's now 49. He was convicted of second-degree sexual assault of a child, right? Now, his story is, and this is one of the things that gets difficult. You hear this second degree sexual assault of the tri- of a child. Ooh, that that's that's really creepy. And he's been um on the sex. Of, he's a registered sex offender because of that. Now you hear this is really really creepy and things like that. But as we have talked about before in this program, there are different variations of th- this crime. Um, there's one thing for the 25 year old guy that goes around chasing the 12 year old girl. All right. 
or the the creepy grandpa that's you know molesting the seven year old kids. That's one type of sex offense. There's also you know people who end up on that registry. They're 17 in high school, and they're fifth. They you know they end up in the back seat of the car with their 15 year old uh, girlfriend, or they're 18. Their girlfriend is 16. These are high school sweethearts, and you, you have again the guy that ends up getting charged. Now I am not endorsing that sort of behavior, but I point this out to say that there's all sorts of different things that can get you convicted of offenses like this and get you put on the sex offender residency, res, the sex offender registry. This guy's story is, okay, I, it happened 20 years ago. I was at a house party. There were strippers there and I had contact and I didn't know the age of the people that were involved. So he's 27. This is 20 years ago. This isn't one of these deals where again the guy is trolling parks, you know, looking for 7-year-old girls. It's apparently a situation where he's at this house party, there are people that are strippers and he gets out of line, not defending the behavior at all. Apparently what ended up happening is um Convicted of second-degree sexual assault of a child, 1998, was sentenced to six months time served under a deal of prosecutor with prosecutors. He says he didn't know the age of the victim in the case. All right, so it, it's 20 years ago. There is apparently no other sort of behavior like that at all, and now he's got a kid. Okay, so here's the story. Um, his son, who is nine years old, is apparently, you know, at Children's Hospital, been uh, hospitalized with a blood infection caused by E. coli. The guy's son has had several serious medical conditions since birth, requiring surgical transplants um, of his pancreas, his liver, and his bowels. So what happens is he apparently goes to visit his son at Children's Hospital, and he is tossed out. He's ex, um, he's escorted out of the building last Tuesday, five days after his son was hospitalized with a, a blood infection. And that is because the people at Wisconsin's Children's Hospital have a, a policy that, um, generally speaking, their visitation is that we're concerned with the safety of our patients, our visitors, and our staff. And so, um, the idea is if you're a registered sex offender, you're not coming in. And uh, they say that we have these general sort of things, and um, that, that's what we do. So you're a registered sex offender. This is the Children's Hospital. You are not going to be allowed to come and visit your child. He says, wait a second. This is 20 years ago. Um, there's been no sort of repeat behavior. My offense didn't involve, again, chasing after like eight and nine-year-old kids. It was, I was at this house party, blah, blah, blah. That's my story. I don't pose a danger to kids. And by the way, um, my son is sick and I want to be able to visit him. He's now filed a lawsuit challenging uh, the Children's Hospital policy. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Now, look, I, I understand if you say, gee, do you think registered sex offenders, as a general rule, should be around children? Um and the answer, I think most people would say, well, no, of course not. But in this particular case, it's 20 years old. It doesn't appear that it was a crime that involved contact with young children. And he wants to visit his son who is sick in the hospital. Should he be allowed to do that? 
does it make sense to tell him that he cannot come in? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I understand that you've got this rule, but in this particular case, does the rule make sense? My answer, and you might disagree with me, my answer is, is no, it doesn't make sense as applied in this case. And yeah, I think the guy should be able to visit his child. 135, Jeff Wagner, WPMJ, coming up in about 10 minutes. I will tell you about a staggeringly bad idea being considered by the Milwaukee County Board. No surprise with that. Right, right now, we're talking about the story about the guy who's the registered sex offender. He's now 49 years old. Um, so 20 years ago, when he was 29, he says um, he was at a house party. There were strippers. He ended up getting charged with second-degree sexual assault of a child. Um, sentenced to six months time served with a deal with prosecutors. He's on the reg- he's a registered sex offender though. Children's Hospital has this policy that says no registered sex offenders in in the hospital. Apparently, the only exception is unless you're there to visit a child who's who's ready to die. So this guy's kid has been in and out of the hospital, several serious health problems. He tries to visit him. Children's Hospital tosses him out. He's now filed a lawsuit. 414-799-1620. Patricia and Teresa, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yes, Patricia. Yes, ma'am. Yes. Uh, Jeff, uh, as a mother of a sexual assault victim, um, I say, too bad, so sad. Take your child to another hospital. I don't want my granddaughter there. And having a guy like this that, that has bad behavior with strippers, and you should have thought of that. 20 years ago, thinking, how would he know he was going to have a son with a blood disorder? And I feel bad for him, but he has no right to infringe on the other children on those floors. Well, well what, let, let me back you up. What, what, is, what is he infringing on? I mean, what, what is he infringing on in your mind? Well, he's a, a sexual offender, so obviously mm-hmm. there is a law stated that he's uh, an offense to the community, so he should either get a lawyer and expunge that or fight it, uh, I don't think that he should uh, force uh, other parents on those in that hospital to uh, have to um, come, you know, have others, because then you open a, the door for other sexual offenders. Well, I mean, you I know? guess, what, what do you see as the purpose of the, the, the sexual offender registry? Is it to punish people or is it to protect people from somebody who might, you know, uh, again, re-offend? Well, I think it's uh, both, both, because now with this story out in the public, you know, other men and young boys might think twice about having these yeah. strippers, and because they never know what's going to come down in their future, you know. Okay, um, let me let me change the facts. If instead of, okay, this guy's at a house party, and there's a stripper there, and turns out to be, I don't know, 17 years old, and he's 29 or whatever, what if this was a situation that occurs occasionally where you've got the 17-year-old boyfriend and the 15-year-old girlfriend, high school sweethearts, same sort of thing. The 17-year-old ends up on the, the sex offender registry because they were out in the backseat of the car. Uh, under that circumstance, would you say, okay, 20 years later, he still shouldn't be able to visit his kid in the hospital? Right, yes, absolutely. There, there's consequences to your behavior, and this is just a sad truth that, this is the reality of you reap what you sow. And, you know, we, we can't always, you know, have these lawsuits thrown, especially when you're in a children's hospital. He can take his child out of that hospital and 
bring them to, you know, a you know, Catholic hospital or any other hospital doesn't have that. But for him to go ahead and, and force other parents to then, then question, you know, I mean, the liability alone, if you were to let the floodgates open and, and, you know, we're not talking about kids in the backseat of a car um, oh. here. It, this is to protect all the children in that hospital. I think it's, a little, a little broader than that. Oh, okay. Well, no, thank, thank, no, thanks for call, but I guess my, my, my point is that there's different, there's different degrees of, of offenses. I, I understand children's hospital. You don't want the creepy old guy who, you don't want the creepy guy who's got the history of going around and, you know, chasing children for sexual gratification. I, I get it. But, but aren't there different degrees? I mean, if the purpose behind the, the sexual offender registry is to warn people and to keep people who might have a predilection to molest juveniles, to keep them away from juveniles. Okay, well, well, fine. But in this particular case, and I guess I'm, I'm sorry, I, I just look at this and I sit there and I think, okay, does this guy, all right, you're, you're at a house, if that's what happened, you're at a house party, all right, it turns out that there's strippers there, you have inappropriate sexual contact. Of course that's bad. You know, but he he pays his dues 20 years from now, 20 years ago. D- does that mean that you know, he he shouldn't be able to, you know, visit his child in the hospital? Is is he really an ongoing danger to you know, other people whose whose kids might be there? And and I guess I'm sitting there thinking, is there some less restrictive way that you could deal with this type of thing. I have to tell you, this strikes me as being an incredibly harsh result. And I appreciate what you're saying, Patricia. Well, maybe this would make people rethink it. I, I, I mean, I, I doubt seriously that, you know, somebody who's, you know, the 19 year old who's dating the 16 year old is going to say, okay, well, we, we, maybe we shouldn't go all the way because 25 years from now, I might have a kid and I might want to visit him in the hospital. I, I just don't see that playing out. Mike in Sheboygan. Mike, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, how are you? Good. What totally do you think? I agree with you. Um, totally agree with you. And here's the reason why. I sit on the public question safety committee. I have been for the last four years. And every other Wednesday, um, people come that are sex offenders, registered sex offenders, women and men, point that out. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and they ask you if they can live in a certain part of the city, you know, that sort of thing. Um, so they can move on. And these are people anywhere from getting out of jail to, like, the gentleman that you're talking about 25, 30 years ago, you know. Um, uh, right, and, it, and it's not, um, and it's it's not always yeah. with, like, and it's it's not always with, like, five and no. six and seven-year-olds. It's, no. you know, and yeah. it's not, it's, it's not some behavior, right. No, like, someone was 18 years old, they had a 16-year-old, mom got pissed off and, and pressed charges, and then he messed up for the rest of his life. And then you got the people that, you know, probably shouldn't even be out of jail yet type thing, you know. They're, right. They're repeat offenders, and, you know, it just keeps on and on and on. And it's, you know, sick stuff. But this guy, you know, he, plus, it's not that a stripper, whatever, but, you know. Well, right, and I'm not going to, right. I mean, yeah, thanks, call. I mean, I get, yeah, I get what you're saying, Mike. And, I mean, I'm, I'm not in any way, shape, or form justifying the behavior and the validity of the prosecution. He did six months' time served. But it, but it is 20 years ago with no sort of repeat behavior. This is why, I mean, candidly, I think the – I understand why we have the sex offender registry. I, I think it has been over the years overused because, again, to me, it, it's, it exists to create a warning for the type of sex offenders – 
who might might reoffend. You know, that's that's the situation where you have. And as a result, you know, once you get this, but but once you get on this, it has all these different repercussions. And I mean, look, I'm not defending, you know, people who engage in, you know, inappropriate behavior with with children. Of course not. But there is a difference between, I don't know, the 24-year-old guy, and this guy was 29, 24-year-old guy who's at the house party, and it turns out that somebody there is underage, or the the 18-year-old who's got the 16-year-old girlfriend, and they're in high school, and they're backseat of the car. There's a difference between that and between the guy who's going around the parks trolling for eight-year-old girls. There's just, there is a difference, but we paint with this incredibly broad brush. Melvin and Cudahy, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Yes, Jeff. Uh, first place, I agree with you. We do have too broad of a brush. Second of all, I've made mistakes in my life. How about you? And last of all, the thing that I think is important here is if this man has, hasn't done anything, he's served his time and everything, his son is in bad health, whatever the cause is, uh, every hospital has social workers. Mm-hmm. All they need to do is to assign a social worker to him, yep. to him for an hour or whatever time they want to set, have him go in and say, hi, honey, I love you, and I'm thinking of right. you. Right, yeah, it's an escorted bit. Right, exactly. That that's that actually, Melvin, is to me the, the common sense sort of compromise here that, you know, all right, if we're worried, you know, here's the deal. You have to You have to sign in security or a social worker or whatever will bring you up to the room and then you know you're going to be escorted out uh, right you know that that is the easy way to solve this whole problem if you seriously think that the guy is you know is a danger i'm not sure they really think he's a danger though this is just one of these rules or rules sort of thing that's well, operating i agree with you but the thing is uh, i think if you made it a, a regular situation for people mm-hmm. who is Child may be sick. I mean, in today's world, there's car accidents, there's other types of accidents, diseases, cancers, and everything. I think you should be able to see your son. We just lost our son a year ago with cancer, and I think I would have probably torn the house apart if I wasn't allowed to go see him. Yes. Yeah, exactly. No, and exactly. I mean, this is one, it, it just... It shouldn't come to the need of filing a lawsuit, but I, I mean, and again, I to me, this is something that you, you sit down with the folks at the hospital and you work out, and apparently that's what the guy's story is. You know, we, we, the kid's been in and out of the hospital before. This is the first time I've started having th- these issues with that. And I don't know about how the hospital found out he was on the sex offender registry thing, but this is part of this rules or rules thing, and again, I, I just... This is one of those where you would think that it would be able you would be able to work something out if you're really now first of all if you're really concerned that the guy is going to reoffend and that the guy is going to be running down the hallways trying to molest sick children sick children well then then you don't want him in but if it's an old sort of offense there's no history of repetition and you know it's been 20 years and there hasn't been any sort of repeat you would think that you would be able to work something out which allows him to, again, see his sick kid um, and still protect everybody else in the hospital. 147, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. 150, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. I don't want to get too far in the weeds on this one, but if you are a property owner in Milwaukee County if you and you rent, rent things out, 
You need to be aware, if you're not, about something that Marina Dmitrieva, who's the former county board chairwoman now in the county, you need to understand what they are trying to pull off right now. Um, this is the deal, and it's I think it's uh, being debated right now, um, hearing before the County Economic Development Committee. All right, here here's what the proposed language would say. It would amend the Milwaukee County Code with regard to housing. Here's what it says. It is the intent of this chapter to render unlawful discrimination in housing and to enact the chapter pursuant to the authority. It is the declared policy of the county that all persons shall have an equal opportunity for housing, regardless of sex, race, color, disability, religion, creed, national origin or ancestry, marital status of a person maintaining a household, lawful source of income. All right, so you can't discriminate in housing. And here's where it gets snuck in. Receipt of rental or housing assistance, age, sexual orientation, etc. So it would be unlawful to discriminate against someone because they receive rental or housing assistance. And that's defined in this law as meaning the receipt of any form of financial contribution by a third party for the purpose of keeping or creating affordable housing for tenants, purchases, or other potential housing recipients, including participating in block grant programs. So if you're a landlord, you could not, you know, you could not discriminate against someone because they were getting housing payments. All right. The way this is written, and I believe this might be the intent of some of the people at the county, is that this would require all landlords to accept Section 8 housing vouchers or any other kind of voucher for rental assistance. Section 8 is a program um, that Wisconsin runs. It's admini- Wisconsin. It's administered through the Department of Housing and Urban Development. Um, it The way it works on a local level is that housing authority works with residents to help them qualify for benefits and offers them low-income housing, and so you, you can get Section 8 grants, all right, that they give you the money to, to do this. They try to place it, which is fine. This, the way a lot of people interpret it, and this is what I believe the county authors are trying to do, it would require landlords to accept Section 8 housing vouchers, all right? Well, what what does that mean in practice? Well, it would mean that if you had to accept Section 8 vouchers, then you would have to participate in the Section 8 program, which means you'd have to register your property. You'd have to submit your property for inspections. It would require you to use one-year leases. You couldn't rent month-to-month anymore because Section 8 doesn't authorize, um, you know, doesn't authorize month to month. They use one-year leases. Um, also, at least the way some people are concerned, this is so broadly drafted that you couldn't evict the tenant who's behind on rent if they get an emergency assistance check. So this is, again, one of these things that landlords need to be aware of, and this is something the county is trying to do. Now, look, if you want to participate in Section 8 housing, more power to you. That, that That's great. It's a way to provide affordable housing. The way this is drafted and what I believe that the intent is, is to say, though, it is unlawful discrimination if you don't participate in the Section 8 housing program. 
which then means if you're a landlord, you've got to register, you've got to have your property inspected, you've got to play all these different situations. You want to talk about trying to, uh, again, punish landlords and drive people out of business. Um, you know, this, this is, you know, where you're going. And this is what I think the language that they're trying to accomplish is. And it's just, I don't, I don't think people understand what's going on, but this is what they're doing in Milwaukee County. This is the continuing war on those evil landlords that are out there. Let's talk to Jason in Mequon. Jason, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hey, good afternoon, Jeff. Hi, Jason. Hi. I think this just barked all out stupid. It says right in the federal law about the Section 8 housing does not mandatory that people comply or apply to this. Mm-hmm. So they're stepping on federal law, and they should be in violation of trouncing on right. the federal law. Right, yeah, you're exactly right. You're right. Federal law doesn't require landlords to participate in this Section 8 housing program. It is a voluntary decision to do this. This ordinance would say to Milwaukee County landlords, you've got to participate. You've got to register. You've got to have the inspections. You've got to do away with month-to-month leases. You've got to agree that you're not going to evict. It's You're right. It's bark out loud dumb, and it's also about as incredibly anti-landlord as you can imagine. Right, correct. And one more thing that was partially stupid that he did is table it until after the elections the next month, so they're not going to take it up again until May. Right. No. Right. Exactly. When they might look through, consider passing it. No. Thanks for call. This is again. This is, and it, it's it's stuck in there. I mean, this is what happens in the county board and people like Marina Dmitrievich who are trying to sneak it through. That that's the idea here. We we want to stand up for. We, we, you know, who, who disagrees? Who thinks that you should be able to discriminate against somebody because of race or creed or sex? Okay, well, we would all agree with that. But then you sneak in this financial situation. So just because you're getting public assistance, you know, landlords would then lose their right to decide whether they want to take these type of housing grants. And that is fundamentally wrong. 156, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. As Belinda was just mentioning, tickets on sale. Ticket sales have been described to me as robust for Insight 2018. It is Wednesday, March 28th at the Country Springs Hotel. Matter of fact, I was just uh, finalizing some things with some of the guests. Governor Scott Walker, Kevin Nicholson, GOP candidate for Senate. Uh, Leah Vukmir is going to, well, we're going to tape something with her. She's unavailable that evening. But Kevin Nicholson will be there. We'll have something taped with Leah Vukmir, who's one of the other GOP candidates. Uh, Judge Mike Skrenak, who is from Sauk County, he is uh, the conservative candidate for the Wisconsin Supreme Court. Uh, the election is is the following Tuesday, and um, we're actually over the course of the next couple of weeks. I'm going to be talking a lot about the Supreme Court race because there's a it it is important. We say this all the time, but it is important. There is a conservative candidate, there is a liberal candidate. The liberal candidate has moved very far to the left and is starting to talk about, well, things that make me think that maybe she should be running for governor instead of Supreme Court justice. But we'll be talking a lot about that um, on Insight. Attorney General Brad Schimmel is going to be there. Kathleen O'Leary, who runs the Wisconsin State Fair. I want to talk about a lot of things related to the fair, including the future of the Milwaukee Mile. Um, so, oh, it's 
Come on out. What I love about this, we'll also have perhaps some surprises. You have the opportunity to, again, see some of these newsmakers in, in a more intimate setting than you typically do. Um, I think people who've been to Insight in the past, and particularly folks who were at Insight last year, loved it quite a bit. So hope to see a lot of people out there. Tickets, 25 bucks. I mean, it's a lot of fun. 25 bucks. Um, have a great evening. So come on out. You can purchase tickets. Uh, and like I say, I'm told the ticket sales are robust. If you go to WTMJ.com, you'll see Jeff Wagner's Insight 2018. Click on it, and we hope to see you there. Again, it should be a lot of fun. All right. I, I've been wanting to talk about this issue with you for a, a few days. The, the There was a story that got me thinking about this in, in the Journal Sentinel the other day. And then, interestingly enough, over the weekend, I, I ran into... I ran into a couple, I ran into a couple who run a, a restaurant. And what, what they want is they want, they, they've been trying, and I'm not, I'm not going to tell you what municipality they, they are, because that's not the point. But, you know, they, they've been struggling with their local municipality because they run this restaurant and they want to get a full class B liquor license. I don't, I don't want to go too far into the weeds with this, but there, there's different licenses that you can get to, to sell liquor. Um, including there, there's the beer, beer and wine, and then there's the full class B liquor license, which allows you to sell, you know, hard alcohol as well as beer and wine. Now, the, the truth is a lot of people, particularly places that run restaurants, will tell you that you need, if you're going to be a successful restaurant, um, as a general rule, you need to have one of these full liquor licenses because uh, when people go out to dinner, all right, it's one thing if you can get a glass of beer. It's one thing if you can get a glass of wine. But some people, they like to have their Manhattans. They like to have their bourbons or whatever. So you you need that if you are going to be successful. Um, all right, then a story. And so in any event, the, these folks, they, they can sell beer and wine, but they, they want to be able to sell alcohol as well um, with their dinner service. And they're having trouble with their local municipality who doesn't want to issue them a license, not because they're a problem, but because there's a limit on the number of liquor licenses that a municipality has. And they're trying to, well, if we give you this one, what happens if another big national chain comes in down the road and wants to wants to open a restaurant, well, they're going to want this license. So if we give you this license, we're not going to have it to give to the national chain that may or may not come in, to which the guy I was talking to says, you know, well, we've been in business for X number of years. You know, why, why, you know, we need this to be able to expand our business. We have been, have been a part of the community for a long time, and you're just holding this out. You're not giving us something that we need that would really help us enhance our business because you think that there's this pie in the sky, somebody else might come in, and that's what the community is saying, yes. This story in in, in the Journal Sentinel last week talked about, you know, Shorewood being tapped out of, of liquor licenses. Um, here's the way they write it. With one new restaurant coming and another expanding its drink menu, the village of Shorewood is now tapped out of liquor licenses. State law limits Shorewood to eight Class B intoxicating liquor and fermented malt beverage licenses. Uh, the village also has two reserve licenses available, but both of those were issued by the village board on February 19th. Now, these licenses we're talking about are the full boat, the ones that let you sell hard liquor as well as beer and wine. The municipalities, Shorewood, Glendale, 
Fox Point, Whitefish Bay, you name it. They get to decide who gets the licenses, but the number of liquor licenses that a municipality has is governed by state law, and it's regulated by the size of the population. You get X number of licenses based on on population. So, I mean, the bigger the the community is, the the more liquor licenses you get. But in the case of, of Shorewood, they're apparently tapped out. You know, that they've issued all the licenses they have for the, the size of the population. So if they get another business that wants to come in, you know, you get that restaurant. They don't have a liquor license to, to issue them. That's why some of these communities, again, hold some in reserve. Yeah, we'd love to give you this one, but, you know, what happens if, I don't know, some national chain, like I say, wants to move in? All right, 414-799-1620. That's the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Here's where I am going with this. I don't think the state should regulate the number of liquor licenses that a community has. I think communities should be able to make that decision and decide, all right, this is all right. Let's say that you have let, let's take Shorewood, for example, Shorewood has had over the last five to ten years. There has been a huge explosion of development along Oakland Avenue. All right. You know, before um, you had vacant storefronts or you had, you know, different things. You know, it, it, but it's amazing. I mean, I, I drive up and down Oakland Avenue. It's amazing all the different stores. You've got bars and you've got restaurants that that are popping up. Um, if you, if a local municipality decides, for example, you know, we want to create a restaurant district here, and, and this is what we want to do. This is our our vision of this. We want to have a lot of bars. We want to have a lot of restaurants. Shouldn't they be able to do it? Does it make sense to arbitrarily limit them to the number of liquor licenses they, that they can issue to the point where you now have a situation, like I say in this this one case, um, these people I were talking to, they're not from Shorewood, they're from a different municipality, but you know they, they've been in business for years and years. They want to be able to serve hard liquor at their restaurant because they think it would increase their profit margin and it would also make it more attractive for people to come into their restaurant because there's some people, if you're going to sit at dinner, you want to have a cocktail. All right, that's just the way it is. You know, shouldn't they be able to do it? And should a local community, if they say, hey, look, okay, maybe based on our size, we're only entitled to eight, but you know what? We want to issue 10 or we want to issue 12 or we want to issue 14. Why shouldn't they be able to do that? 414-799-1620. Let's start with Mike on the northwest side. Mike, good afternoon. Yeah, good afternoon, Jeff. Uh, my, my thought is why is there every, even a difference between Class A and Class B? If you want a glass of wine or a cocktail, what is the real difference between the alcohol content, uh, which is not that much different? The other point is uh, based on uh, with the municipality and the restaurants that they want to develop business, they should be able to entitle uh, Whoever wants one and deserves one, 
to get one. Well, well right. As long as, again, the municipality decides that. I mean, I, I understand why, for example, in a local community, you might decide, hey, we, you know, we don't want to have a restaurant district or we don't want to have a bar district. And so we only want four or five establishments that can, you know, sell liquor on the premises. Okay, well, that that's fine. I don't have a problem with the municipality making that decision. But if, on the other hand, you have somebody that says, hey, you know, our our downtown is exploding. We've got all these people that want to start bars or want to start restaurants, and we think it would be great. Why should they be arbitrarily limited in the number of liquor licenses they can get by the state? Correct. Yeah. No, thanks for the call. I mean, see, that's that that's the 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 key to this all and it's and it first of all it leads to this game that gets played where you know you have i mean people trying to essentially sell the rights to have liquor licenses and value there but i mean i just think i think the municipality whether it's shorewood or glendale or whitefish bay or wherever should be able to decide what kind of community do they have do what do they want to have and if you decide, you know, we, we want restaurants and we want bars and we want to create this district, what what difference does it make if, you know, you've got, you know, I don't know what the, I've, off the top of my head, I don't know what the, the license per population is, but what does it matter? If you want to create a, a bar district or whatever and you think that that's going to be good for your community, why should the state be able to say, you know, no. Um, let's see. Here's a text. I agree with you. The state should only offer recommendations at most. Yeah. I mean, that's that's kind of what the key to this whole thing is. It's playing out in Shorewood. It played out. in the, Again, I'm, I'm just talking to these people the, over the weekend and they're just saying, hey, you know, we you know, we've been it's so incredibly frustrating when you're trying to grow your business. And to do that, you need to be able to sell alcohol on the premises beyond beer and wine. And we're being told, no, well, you can't have a liquor license because you can't have the license you need to do that because we need to save this because somebody else might come down tomorrow. I mean, what difference does it make if it's a good business and it can enhance it and increase the tax base and the municipality thinks, fine, you can handle it responsibly? Isn't that what local control is all about? Just saying. 220, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 223, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. The new guy in charge in the Milwaukee Convention Center says a bigger building could be a game changer for all of us. Here, John McCure and Melissa Barclay's entire conversation with Wisconsin Center District CEO Marty Brooks at 3.30 on Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Rue is looking at me. He, my, the skepticism in my voice just kind of came through on that one. Yes, if yes, if, if we spend millions and millions of dollars and we enlarge the convention center, yeah, we're going to get all these additional conventions. Huh. Color me skeptical about that. I'm just saying. All right. Okay. So so baseball season actually opening day is two weeks from Thursday. And the Brewers' home opener is three weeks from today. So I'm, I'm a huge baseball fan. And to the point where I decided finally to put my money where my mouth was. Because my best friend loves to go to ball games. went to a lot of ball games last year. I have a press pass so I can kind of come and go. But you can't. It's no fun to sit in the press box. It, it's just not. And so um, so I decided, okay, this is the year. Um, my, my buddy and I, we, we went in and we bought a 20-game a season pack ticket. T- ticket package. 
and we're, we're going to split it. I figure, okay, we'll, so there's 20 games. Um, he and I will go to 10 together and then he and his son will, you know, Evan and Dean will go to a bunch and we'll, we'll, we'll use them. I'm not, I'm not worried at all. So it, it was good. So I, I go on the Brewers website and I'm looking for the different tickets and I wanted to sit in the infield boxes. So, um, I was looking for available seats and the computer kept giving me the, the, what they perceived was the best available, which was closer to the field, but further down the first baseline. And I, you know, I, I, so I called them up and I said, look, I'm interested in this, but can we check this out? Cause I would rather, I'm willing to sit higher up, but I'd rather be closer to home plate. I mean, I'd just be willing to, to trade that. And, and so we, we found a great pair of seats and I'm very much looking forward to this. And so I ponied up my own dough and, and we're going to have a lot of fun. But I will tell you one of the things that was a factor in my decision is the, the seats that the computer was trying to give me were down the first baseline and past where there will be a screen. Um, it used to be at Miller Park that the screen ended at the first base, at where the first base dugout starts. This year, pursuant to baseball rules, it now extends all the way past the, the dugout. But the, the, the section where the computer was trying to give me seats and would not have had a screen. And I've seen some of these foul balls go whistling down the line. And I just, I was thinking, you know, uh, part of it, I, I want the perspective of sitting up, but I don't mind sitting behind the screen. And I, I just, it, do, it does not bother me. I understand some people don't like that. And it's a big deal for some people. For me, and I pay attention to the games and stuff, but these balls, you know, sometimes you, you're just looking down and we've had situations. There was the woman that was hit and seriously injured at Miller Park, what, last year or two years ago. So this has been an ongoing sort of thing. And, you know, baseball has always taken the position that, well, if, you know, it's an exception, assumption of the risk thing. If you come, you got to pay attention. But in, in my case, I don't mind looking through the screen. So that's where I got the tickets. Um, and I, I don't mind having the protection of the screen. I bring this up because there was a, a lawsuit that was recently filed, um, against Major League Baseball by a guy who was blinded after getting hit by a foul ball at Wrigley Field. Um, guy 60 years old. He was blinded in the left eye when he was hit by a foul ball while sitting in an outfield section along the first baseline at Wrigley Field in late August, which is kind of where the seats that the computer was trying to give me were. Um, the basis of, of his lawsuit is that Look, Major League Baseball knew that there was this danger to people who were in these areas from foul balls, and they did not require all teams to extend the netting. So that's kind of the theory that that he's, you know, arguing that here there's, um, you know, Major League Baseball could have protected me. They didn't, and I should be able to sue. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. Given the fact that you have, you know, baseball season getting ready to start, I think this is an interesting conversation. In the event that somebody gets hit by a foul ball, do you think that they should have the right to sue? Now, in this case, like I say, the guy is suing Major League Baseball, saying they could have imposed a rule that would have put screens all the way down 
They didn't. I got hit. I've lost the sight in my left eye. I should be able to recover. Is this a situation where you go to the game, you assume the risk? Should they be able to sue? In this case, should the guy be able to sue baseball because he got hit by the foul ball? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I will come down. I'll tell you where I come down on this in just a moment. But here's my question. Does he have a legitimate case? He got hit by the foul ball. A net would have saved him, would have protected him. But Major League Baseball didn't require the Cubs to put that in. 414-799-1620. We discuss next. 229 Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. It's 236, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Will the president actually meet with the leader of North Korea? And if he does, who really wins? John and Melissa explore 320 this afternoon. Tune in to Wisconsin's Afternoon News. All right, um, last summer, Cubs fan sitting at Wrigley Field. He's down the first baseline. He gets hit by a screaming line drive foul ball, loses the sight in his left eye. He's now filed a lawsuit against Major League Baseball and the Chicago Cubs, alleging willful and wanton negligence in failing to extend protective netting down the line, thereby exposing him to this. Uh, Major League Baseball has now required, um, effective this year, all the stadiums have to have netting that extends down at least to the end of the dugout. By end, I mean the far end towards the outfield. I was telling the story. I mean, I, I just bought this 20-pack of tickets. And I was looking at different seats, and I kind of made the conscious decision that I didn't want to sit in the section right after the netting ended. I would rather sit higher up but further away. But that's a decision I made. If you go to a ball game and you're in one of those great seats and you're down there and you get hit by a foul ball, Whose fault is it? 414-799-1620. Let's start with Gary in Menominee Falls. Gary, hello. Hey, how are you doing? I'm well, thank you. Okay, is it Major League Baseball's fault? Is this a lawsuit that this guy got hit in the head? Um, I, I don't think it's um, the, the, I think the, uh, the responsibility is the person who purchased the ticket. Mm-hmm. They know the risks when they go to the game. And if, I don't know how it is now it's order online. I don't need to do that. Or if I do, I have a mail me the ticket. But when you flip the ticket over, there's a contract there. Mm-hmm. It's stated in there that that's a contract. They're not responsible. Yeah, that you got right. There's that little small lettering in the back where it says, "Okay, we're not liable if if you get hit by if you get hit." So you you think if you make the decision to sit in the glo- good seats, you know, close up, but not in front of a net, if you get hit by a ball, it's that's the assumption of the risk. You that's, that's the risk you take when you when you go to a sporting event. Right. Okay, good enough. For, thanks for call. 414-799-1620. I'll tell you where I come down on this in just a second. But I'm I'm curious, because this happens, I mean, I don't want to say statistically it happens a lot, but it does happen in any given year. You're going to have, you always have a couple situations where you have people who get hit by the foul balls. And in a couple cases, it, it's serious injuries. I mean, most times it's a bruise or something like that, but, you know, those balls um, travel very, very quickly off the bat. And I understand that some people would say, well, you should be paying attention. But the truth of the matter is, I, I don't know that you can be paying attention all the time. And, you know, you look away and that could just be the instance where you end up getting hit. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Bob in Sussex. Bob, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Good afternoon, Jeff. Um, my opinion is pretty much similar to your last caller. Uh, if you go to any golfing events, uh, you're there at your own risk. Mm-hmm. And a lot of times, you, a professional hits the spectator. Right. And 
what do they do? They walk up, they sign the glove, they smile, pat them on the hand, or shake their hands, and they walk away. Right. Uh, you got the same problem. And in the old days, baseball, if you remember, that protective netting was basically just behind home plate. Yes, yes. And I, I believe that the clubs of their own volition extended it further. But here again, like I said, uh, unless the legality changes, Mm-hmm. I see no recourse for the guy. Sorry that he got hit in the head, but right. you got to pay attention. Well, right. Well, I, but but I mean, your your big point would be the same as our first caller that you know if if you're sitting in those great seats down the first base or third base line and you know there's not a net in front of you, you understand that hey, one of the risks I take is that it might come, I might see this screaming foul ball that that comes at me. Exactly. No, yeah. you get hit by a bat that's thrown. Well, right, or right, yeah, th- thanks for that's thrown accidentally. 414-799-1620. Let's talk to Jeff in Fox Point. Jeff, you're on WTMJ. Good afternoon. Hey, Jeff. Hi. I don't think it's fair to expect someone to have the physical prowess to, to be able to jump out of the way of a ball coming at them really mm-hmm. fast. And the games have gotten so long now that I would think that it'd be almost impossible to sit there and be on guard mm-hmm. for, you know, three-plus hours, however long they, the games go to. Is that an argument then for saying, okay, then don't sit in those particular seats? I mean, then sit sit higher up or sit in the outfield or sit in the bleachers or wherever if you're concerned about that. It probably could be, yeah. Um, but I, I do think that the ballpark might have some, some fault with that because they should, if there are issues, they should be putting up, up nets and things like that. And then that's still really don't obstruct you too badly. Right. You know, see, it is interesting. I don't mind, and we've talked about this before. I don't mind looking through the net. That it's it's funny that doesn't bother me at all. I do know people, including a close friend of mine, who um who has really has had season tickets forever, really really good seats. Who who hates the, the fact that there's the net there? Just absolutely hates looking through that netting and think that that's kind of changed. Uh, you know, I, I mean, again, I, I'm there. But, oh, right, we're behind the net. Okay, and then I just forget about it, you know, after about 30 seconds. But for some people, they, they like that access. They like the ability to be able to get the foul balls. They like being able to, you know, yell at the players without having that net there. Now, I don't happen to be that guy. I guess here's where I come down on this. I think, I think putting up the nets is a good idea from the perspective of safety. You know, hockey did this. You know, hockey had situations for years where the pucks would go over the glass and they'd end up, you know, hitting people in the stands and causing injury. So now at hockey, you know, in NHL games, you see that there's netting that adds this level of protection. I think it is a good thing that Major League Baseball is moving in this direction. I I do. Having said that, I don't think this is a lawsuit. And, I mean, I feel bad that this guy got hit in the face. I, I, I do. And I understand how it happened, and I'm not saying that it's necessarily his fault. Some people say, well, if you get hit, you're not paying attention. Well, all right, I don't think you can pay attention, like our last caller, Jeff, was saying. I don't think you can pay attention for three-plus hours, and people look at their cell phones, and people turn to the person next to them and have a conversation, or people reach down and, you know, look in their purse or, you know, move, put their beer on the ground or whatever. People do that, and, and this can happen in a split second. So I I don't blame the person for that, but I do think there is an assumption of the risk. And you know when you go to certain sporting events that there's some stuff that could end up happening. You go to a baseball game, and, and part of the game is you know there are foul balls that come out. And sometimes those foul balls are really smoked. So it seems to me that this is one of those deals where if you don't want to deal with that, 
Um, then what you do is you say, okay, well, I, I'm willing to have the trade-off. I'll sit in the second deck, and you can still get a foul ball there, but it's less likely. Or I'll sit in the third deck, or I'll sit in the outfield, um, or I'll sit behind the net. Th- those are the trade-offs. To me, I'm with the assumption of the risk thing. I don't fault Major League Baseball for doing this because I think it's good to try to make it a safer environment. And I understand some fans are going to be upset because, well, you know, we don't like looking through the the uh, net. I think overall it's a good thing to do it. But if you get hit by the ball, uh, as long as it's the foul ball, as long as it's not something that's intentionally thrown, I just don't see you recovering. I just flat don't. It's 244. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. When we come back, all right, it is a shared experience, something that affected us all over the weekend. Um, Did you survive? Stick around. It's 244. This is Jeff Wagner. 248, Jeff Wagner, WTMJ. Okay, we only have a couple minutes left before we have to turn over the program to Wisconsin's Afternoon News. But this is a shared experience. Rue, you will know the answer to this. We're producing the show today and always. All right, what happened Sunday morning that happened to all of us? You, me, John McCure, Melissa Barkley, Greg Matzik. What happened? Daylight saving time. Yes. And I understand that it is saving singular. Used to be, I'd say, daylight savings time. And, of course, then a number of people would correct me, and they were right. It is daylight saving time. We would we spring ahead. So we all lost an hour of sleep on Saturday night into Sunday morning. The effect of this is that it now will stay lighter longer. Well, actually, I mean, the amount of daylight is going to be the same. You know, it's that thing about the earth spinning around the, you know, spinning around the sun, all that type of stuff. But from a time perspective, where it used to get dark at 6 o'clock, now it gets dark at 7 o'clock, or whatever the, the time might be. So you have an additional hour of daylight at the end of the day, leading to the um, summer equinox when June, June 21st or whatever, where it stays late around here till you know, going on nine o'clock. So you just, you know, you can get off of work and you can have, uh, you know, all sorts of stuff. Now, the downside to this, of course, is you lost an hour of sleep. You had to, you know, readjust all your clocks. If you have the old-fashioned clocks where you have to, you know, change the hour of that, you have to readjust your body to this as well. And what that means is, um, time-wise, it now um, stays darker longer into the morning, okay, an hour later. All right, 414-799-1620. That is the Accident Mortgage Talk and Text Line. This, this happens you know, twice a year. We used to be on daylight saving time for for less, and what's happened is it has expanded over the years. So now, you know, we'll be on daylight savings time now pretty much, what, through October, early November, or whenever it is. So a number of people say that you shouldn't make these adjustments. What we should do is just be on either daylight saving time or on the standard time all year round that it's too inconvenient, that it doesn't make any sense, that it creates all these different disruptions, and there's no good reason to do it. Arizona stays on the same time all year round. So Arizona doesn't take daylight saving time. 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. I admit I am a fan of daylight saving time. I I don't have a problem with the way the present system works. Is it a bit of a nuisance to 
you know, have to change some of the clocks that still don't automatically uh, adjust. Yeah, it's a little bit of a nuisance, but I'm able to figure that out. Um, I still wear a wristwatch. Is it a bit of a pain to have to fast forward your wristwatch? Yeah, a little bit, but I'm able to figure that out. I don't mind the changes. I like the fact that in the summer months, it stays lighter longer, at least time-wise. I, I think that's good. I also understand that while I don't like the fact in the winter that, you know, sometimes it's just dark by the time you, it's dark when you get up and it's dark when you come home from work. That's just part of the nature of it. I don't have a problem with the present system, but there's a huge piece on uh, Fox News today. Daylight savings time. Don't blame Ben Franklin, but make it stop. Whether you blame it on the French, the English, the Germans, or Benjamin Franklin, the scourge of daylight savings time will struck at 2 a.m. on Sunday. It has created havoc for the hapless American worker. Huh. Havoc for the hapless American worker. Sorry, I, with all due respect to people that have trouble like adjusting to this, all right, I knew Saturday night that you were going to lose an hour of sleep. I set the clocks ahead. We planned for this, and now I'm pretty much over it. And candidly, I like the fact that today it's going to be, you know, it's in the 40s, and I'm going to have an extra hour of daylight into the evening. 414-799-1620, that is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. All right, do you like the fact that we've done this? Would we, or should, is it just, is whatever advantage we get, is it not worth the trouble? Or does this make a lot of sense? 414-799-1620. That is the Acunet Mortgage Talk and Text Line. We've got time for um, one or two calls. I Like I say, I don't mind this at all. Matter of fact, I I sort of look forward to this. Um, I don't like losing an hour of sleep, but I was able to adapt. And in the fall, I don't mind getting an extra hour of sleep. Uh, let's talk to Jim in Manitowoc. Jim, you're on WTMJ. Hello. Hi, Jeff. Hi, Jim. Um, I would say... Uh well, first of all, I'm a golfer, so okay. I like the like time. Right. Um, I uh, I don't mind the changes in the fall and the spring, except I have a VivoFit step tracker, <laughs> and it always takes me a little time to resync it with my computer. Yep. So that's kind of could be a problem. But but as but a golfer, I, I you say, pardon. As a golfer, you love the fact that during the summer you can play golf till eight thirty or nine o'clock at night. Exactly, and I play uh, if the weather is decent. I play into November, so uh, I like it, uh, you know, longer in the fall. Actually, I would prefer that instead of it starting like it did this last Sunday, you know, we could wait till closer to the middle or the end of April. Uh, I live in uh, Manitowoc, so uh, it's pretty cool here in the spring. <laughs> so you're and, you're uh, not getting that time. Much golf until the first of May. So. Yeah, I, I they, they school, I mean, I understand, and you you, you can. I guess that to me, the question really isn't: Do you do away with daylight saving time? Actually, I think if we you just went to twenty four hours, I, I think most people would agree that it would be daylight saving time permanently. I, I think that's kind of how it went, but that would mean you know kids at the bus stop, um, really, really in the middle of winter, you know, really, really dark and that type of stuff. I, I think the bottom line of all this is you you kind of get used to it and. Um, some people make such a big deal of it, but the bottom line is, I think for most of us, we had adjusted by one o'clock in the afternoon. And now some people might have said, "Oh, gee, I forgot about that. Maybe I was late to get to church or whatever." But in general, for most of us, I think we were able to handle it. All right, 
It's 2.54. When we come back, we're going to find out what John, Melissa, and Greg have on their minds for Wisconsin's Afternoon News. Stick around. This is Jeff Wagner, WTMJ.